Start your engines. The full program from Umbrella's Automotive Marketing Summit is now live. With Hyundai, Polestar, the Electric Vehicle Council and more taking to the stage this September, head to mumbrella.com.au slash automotive to see all the groundbreaking topics to be discussed this year. Hello and welcome back to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Callum Jasper, and again we're coming to you from a Mumbrella Summit. This time it's the Publish Conference. Busy day today, so again we're going to fly through a couple of topics before you then hear a session from today's event featuring Nine's Managing Director of Publishing, James Chessel. You'll hear us discuss topics including Ollie Rapson's departure from iProspect to run his winery full-time, some reflections from today's event, a few takeaways from Nine's earnings report last year, plus record-breaking numbers on the new House of Dragon show on Binge. If you do hear a bit of background noise, that's certainly adding to the ambiance. Joining me is Kalila Welch, journalist. Hey. How are you doing? Not too bad. I'm pretty full. I just had a big lunch. Oh, what a delicious lunch we've had. It was great catering. Sitting across from me is acting deputy editor Emma Shepard. Hey, Em. Hello, hello. Good to be back. You full up from lunch as well? I am indeed, but I'm ready for a uh, a, a, a successful podcast record, so let's do it. And uh, sitting next to Em is our managing editor, Andy Banks. Hey, Callum, thanks for having me. The uh, morning tea was a bit eggy, but lunch is fantastic. Yeah, I think we've just got to be careful as we've just eaten. Can, I can kind of hear the the, um, the falafel in my teeth as I speak. So. Oh, really? <laughs> mm. <laughs> yum, yum, yum. <laughs> At least uh, it's not quite as bad as I think I listened to a podcast once where it was there was a bunch of guys um, sampling chips, like crisps, um, on the podcast, which does not AS, make... That's like ASMR. ASMR yeah, yeah, but they weren't doing it in in like the ASMR way. They were just reviewing <laughs> chips and I was like, you guys have not thought this through because it was <laughs> an audio nightmare. Um, anyway, kicking things off, uh, for the umpteenth time this year, we're going to talk about some ins and outs at Dentsu. This one's a little bit different though. Well, the the out that is. Um, iProspect CEO Ollie Rapson is departing to throw himself full-time into his winery in the Masson Rangers Lions Will Estate. Um, this one's got Dentsu, or the recent Dentsu written all over it, as a media CEO who recently joined Danny Bass, recently returned from his stint uh, running his Berry Hill Farm retreat. Um, not quite the great resignation, as um, Ollie, as I understand, was already living up there and has been for some time running the winery with his his wife. But, um, yeah, Kalila, what do you make about this one? It's a little bit of a different departure. And then second of all, we'll get you to talk about some big ins that have come in at Dentsu as well. Yeah, well, first of all, congrats, Ollie. Sounds like a fun, um, a fun project to take on going up to the winery full time. And, and what's your take on, um, I guess, this sort of land change, rather not not sea change, but moving to the country, focus full time on a completely different avenue from what I imagine running um, iProspect has been like for the last last while for Ollie. Um, I, I'm going to say, Cal, I feel a little bit jealous. Who wouldn't want to leave the big smoke to, you know, get some property, make some wine and drink it? But yeah, I mean, who wouldn't want to just get out of the city and focus on living off the land? Yeah, so obviously um, good luck to Ollie and and all that. But um, this does leave Dentsu in a pretty interesting position and I guess furthering 
the many themes that we've talked about this year as it does now leave them without um, a CEO I prospect. We know that there is, there's also no CEO at CARA as well uh, and there hasn't been, I guess, that specific CEO role for a while at DensuX, that other media agency. So we'll see what's happening there. Khalil, we did have some um, ins in Dentsu Creative, though, which has very much been the trend over that side of the business this year. We did. Yeah, just yesterday we had the news of the appointment of creative duo Avish Gordon and Mandy Vandermeer, um, who were the first chief creative officers and joint chief creative officers at that for the group's newly consolidated creative offering, Dentsu Creative. Um, the announcement came just one day after it was kind of tacked on at the end of a release announcing um, MNC Saatchi's new ECD, Emma Robbins, um, national ECD, Emma Robbins. So um, Avish and Mandy had both been with MNC for, MNC Sydney for uh, four years or so, I think, which came after a stint of freelancing. And prior to that, um, I believe they first started working together at TBWA. Um, so a lot of experience there and they're joining um, ECDs at Dentsu Creative, Sarah McGregor and Boothroyd and Marcus Tesorio. Yeah, uh, certainly some interesting appointments. Kirsty Muddle, the uh, CEO over there, has made this year. So again, look forward to um, to seeing, I guess, the product that comes out of there and maybe at some point we'll um, see some business coming in as well. Um up next, a few developments from Nine's earnings last week and Binge's Big Raw. So after Nine's uh, earnings last week, whether they reported, particularly in the publishing sector, um, pretty strong revenue and profits, um, we heard the MEAA's Adam Portelli come out and criticise the the decision where, you know, we've got these negotiations still ongoing. And today, um, journalists from across Nine's uh, Metro titles, those being the AFR, the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, WA Today and the Brisbane Times, um, joining on this hashtag, Fair Share Nine. We will hear a little bit later on from... Managing Director of Nine Publishing, James Chessel. Um, right now they're calling it industrial action, but as I understand the journalists are still going about their their jobs. Banksy, what's your sort of take on how this is playing out? I think uh, from the earlier story we had where we talked about <clears throat> the Nine pretty much trying to look after all their staff versus the journalists' demands on, on what they believe is a fair share. I think that's really the sticking point at the moment. I really can't see how um, that they can find a solution in the short term. I, I think this is something that it will be kind of – it will take a little bit of time um, to, to figure itself out. I think that what does rub people up the wrong way is, is the financials and how well they did – um, I think those aspects and, and the same with News Corp the week before where they had really good results and then they, they kind of laid people off. I, I think these sort of things make it really hard for for the workers to quite understand the, the policies and everything that's in place. So I, I think it is a, a very delicate position that both, both parties are in at the moment. Yeah, well... I they are, it does appear as though they're not too far apart judging by the information that's kind of been provided by Nine on what, what that offer is. Um, we will, as I said, hear a bit more about that later. But yeah, 
interesting because I'm, uh, you know, up here for the event in Sydney. And um, as we're all aware, we had a bit of trouble this morning. We've got the the rail strikes going on up here, plus uh, potential nursing strikes, as you kind of mentioned before. We and buses and, as well. And buses. So, yeah, um, kind of nearing um, a few worrying points on a couple of fronts there. Um, anyway, on to something a little <laughs> different um i i don't know about i know i'm pretty sure we've all been watching this um the first episode of the house of the dragon the the i guess the prequel to well one of the prequels to uh game of thrones aired for the first time last week uh we've spoken about streaming figures recently and you know foxtel and binge have come well foxtel has come out and said that its numbers on foxtel and binge for the the premiere episode last week garnered a record viewership of a hundred sorry 1.23 1.23 million. Um, Kalila, what what are kind of um, Foxtel coming out and spruiking this? We have seen a few things about their numbers recently as well. Yeah, well, obviously the show is such a big get for Foxtel in the first place just with um, the huge following that the Game of Thrones franchise has and, you know, we were talking before um, – about the show and it is very much in the vein of Game of Thrones. It's it's almost indistinguishable watching it. It's got the same um, soundtrack, opening, uh, opening, opening theme <laughs> music um, and, you know, just watching it, it feels like a very natural continuation of the franchise really. Um, but, yeah, the, the numbers are really impressive and they would be spooking this. The total viewership um, exceeded what we – um, new to be the number um, of total subscribers as per the last quarter, which was 1.192 million. That's specifically binge though, right? For binge, sorry. Um, but, you know, I think that just anecdotally speaking even, because, you know, we won't we won't really know how this has impacted the platform until they release their next kind of figures. Um but I've personally downloaded Binge for the first time. I know a number of other people who, if they haven't already downloaded it, are definitely going to want to watch the show and haven't previously used Binge. Um, so I do think that just, you know, from that perspective alone, it's going to have to make a, a big difference for them. Em, I'll just come to to you with this one. We kind of did see in that last quarter subscribers went down for Binge, but then now with this, I guess, what you would call event TV, you would think, as Kalila has, um, those more people are coming back to the service, you know, it's easier, they've got their card details already registered on there. What does this kind of say about the future of streaming and how people are buying these subscriptions? I think the streaming services have to be really, really clever um, to kind of outsmart the viewers and people who subscribe because what Binge is doing with House of the Dragon is kind of drip feeding the episode. So it's only on once a week. Um, whereas some streaming services, when they had something new, they'd release, you know, three or four in the same week. So that's kind of keeping them on the platform for longer and subscribed for longer. The, the, the irony is it's called Binge, but they're dropping one a week. <laughs> Searing analysis, uh, Banksy. Insert laughter here. I think, um, oh, sorry. I was just going to add as well, I think that that especially will be effective just because I know for myself, because I'm going to have to have the subscription at least the duration of the season, I'm going to start watching other shows while mm. I'm paying for it and then I'm sure inevitably that means I'm going to have to keep the subscription because mm. I'm going to want to watch the next iterations of various other series that I'm going to pick up. 
Absolutely. And I think what's really uh, irritating for a journalist um, who reports on the numbers and the figures like we do is they only release the streaming numbers when they want to. You know, that's 1.23 million is amazing for them. But now that more streamers in Australia are getting into ad supported tiers, it would really benefit, you know, benefit the market to be able to see some more kind of solid figures um, to start seeing some trends um, in the streaming space. What I mean by that is specific to, you know, individual shows. Uh, so advertisers, when they do What's get... What's causing like the up- yeah. Yeah. As we can stuff. see with TV yeah. when, you know, yeah. maps is popping off. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a great point, Em. It'll be interesting to see, um, I guess, how specific we can get in future with those um, those numbers as obviously, as you say, ad-supported tiers come in. Um, coming up, a few highlights from Umbrella's published conference today. All right, let's crack straight into this one. Kalila, would you like to kick us off? You're about to go on stage just after this. What are you looking forward to? Yes. um, Well, I have two sessions. I'm very excited to be able to moderate a panel um, from the Waiting on Zuck hashtag, Waiting on Zuck campaign, um, which will be really exciting. We have Misha from The Conversation, um, Adam Ferrier from Thinkabell, Nick Shelton from Broadsheet and Karen Marlab from Pro Bono Australia and PS Media. Um, so we're going to talk about kind of the state of the news media bargaining code and also um, obviously the campaign and, and the impact it had on the industry. And M, you had a um, one-on-one with Jane Huxley from R Media this morning. Yes, that went incredibly well. Jane Huxley, uh, basically the title of that session was Print's Legacy to Ecom's Promise. So it was kind of looking at how print is going to survive um, and how they're kind of accelerating their e-commerce offering to kind of stay afloat. Uh, the major thing that I brought got out of that session was how to kind of, how she was going to keep print alive um, and how long does she see print lasting for in Australia Um well, the local markets and including NZ. She said that uh, she, you know, advertorials in particular have been around for hundreds of years. Magazines have always had a place. Um, She doesn't see that print is not going to survive. um, And so she sees longevity in it. But however, saying that, she says that the business has a rock solid e-commerce strategy. Uh, For an example, you know, they just acquired an e-commerce company, hard to find. um, And potentially more more to come in the next couple of years. So that's what I got out of that one. And then Banksy, finally from you. I'm actually looking forward to my session with Ben May from The Code Company. Um, I think it's probably going to generate into Ben giving um, advice on how to fix up people's websites in the Q&A. So I'm really looking forward to, to handling that. Um, I've got uh, Matt Roll from um, Pedestrian Group as well. So They've got uh, the Chainsaw, which is their new offering that's just been announced today on Mumbrella. So really keen to see uh, what he has to say about that. Yeah, and then in a, in a sort of similar but slightly different vein, we'll, um, we'll hear from Nine's James Chessel as well. That's sort of about uh, the transition from a print-heavy business into a sort of hybrid digital-led business. So, um, yeah, that's probably a good segue to lead into that coming up next. A decade ago, Australia's news publishers faced commercial and structural challenges and were scrambling to forge a path towards the next. 
Now, the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age and the AFR remain some of the highest read news titles nationally, boosted by a growing and loyal subscription model. In this session, Managing Director of Nine Publishing, James Chessel, sits down with myself uh, to discuss how the business has shifted its leading masthead since its blockbuster merger with Fairfax Media in 2018. Please join me in welcoming James to the stage. Joining me, James. Oh, is this on? Maybe not. How are you? I'm very. You can good. hear me. Good. Um, we'll give James a quick bio for those of you who don't know him. Um, he was appointed Nine's managing director for publishing in 2021, with responsibility for the Australian Financial Review, the Sydney Morning Herald, the Age, the Brisbane Times, and WA Today. He formerly worked on the editorial side of the publishing business where he was group executive editor for Metro Publishing for three and a half years and national editor of The Herald and The Age with responsibility for federal politics business and world coverage. He's also a Walkley award-winning journalist and began his career as a reporter for The Age before working at The Herald, The Australian and The Financial Review. Thank you very much, James. Thanks, Colin. So this is a very timely chat, uh, just over a year uh, since you stepped into your current role and a week after some pretty impressive numbers from your publishing division at Nine's yearly earnings report. Uh, in those earnings, we saw digital revenue now accounts for around 60% of the publishing revenue at Nine, with digital subscription and licensing revenue increasing 66% across the year. Um, Nine was quoted in the report as saying the digital growth more than offset print subscription and retail sales, which declined by about 6%, which is more generally part of a longer term trend. Um, can you start by giving us a brief overview from your perspective as to how that has changed over the last five or so years, how we got to this position, and I guess why that change in strategy was needed? Um, sure. As, as you said, I actually started at Fairfax as it was then in 2000. So I've sort of been uh, plus or minus a couple of years along for the journey for a very long time. Um, and, you know, we're very proud of the results we announced last week. It's a record result. And, it, you know, it, it, we are literally one of the most profitable publishing businesses in the, in the world. Um, it obviously didn't used to be that way. I've lived through uh, many strikes and industrial actions as a, a, when I was on the editorial side, about about five or six, I've lost count. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was that kind of period of uh, periods of, of redundancies and cuts and all that kind of stuff. But but about about seven or eight years ago, under under Greg Highwood, who was the CEO of Fairfax, um, sort of a decision was made to try and get the cost base in particular into the right shape. Um, and it's not a very sexy thing to talk about, but there was a period there seven or eight years ago, or maybe even 10 years ago, where you know two trucks would head off from Fairfax's uh, printing press and News Corp's printing press, and they'd be half full, and they'd deliver the newspapers um, at the same time. And um, you know, quite literally, Rupert Murdoch had an ideological kind of aversion to consolidating that part of the business. But um, we were able to, or I, I should probably say, you know, some of the management of the past was able to consolidate that. So now um, one truck delivers all the newspapers that, that you get, one printing press delivers all the newspapers that, that, you, that you get. And it, when you look at the cost base of the business, 
about 70 million of the of the 100 million dollars in costs that have been removed over the past 10 years have come from that printing and distribution side as i said it's not the sexiest part of the business but that's had a huge impact and that's allowed the people in the editorial part of the business which was which was me for for quite a while to focus on the stories um, and to also shift to a more uh, subscription focused uh, model rather than um, you know some of the some of the the reach and the, and the click kind of focus that we club focus that we had in the past which led to I think some pretty sub optimal um, outcomes when it came to what we were presenting on our home pages for particularly for the Sydney Morning Herald and the age and then what you would get in the print uh, product the next morning there was a bit of a disconnect there um, and we sort of we've we've uh, we've brought those things back together and we're focusing on um, that digital recurring revenues particularly on the subscription side which is what the market recognizes when they're valuing valuing the results and as you said 60% of revenue for FY22 was was digital. It was less than 50 in FY22, so that's a big increase. And really critically, more than a third of revenue now is from digital subs and um, and licensing for for the the financial year just gone. Just a year before that, it was less than 20%, less than a fifth. So the the change has been really really rapid, which has been which has been pleasing. You, you sort of mentioned the difference in product that you were offering those those digital readers and then the print readers. Do you did you see those as two separate audiences? Because I know a big part of that transition, I think it was it around 2016, 17, with the blue business, was around actually building the digital product, and then editorial. You also have to co kind of follow that through. How did, were you? Was the plan, I guess, to migrate those print readers onto the digital service and kind of mold that into one product what was what was that kind of process like um i think the view at the time was and look it, it, part of this has served us really really well like the herald's read by 12 million people over the course of a month the, the age is read by about um six you know they're the two biggest mastheads in the country so i don't want to kind of be overly critical of the the decision making of the past but there was a view at Fairfax and a lot of other media companies at the time that reach was the was the core uh, should be core business um, and then obviously the financial returns on the commercial side weren't what we expected so um, the AFR was one of the first mastheads in the entire world to put up a really you know, completely tight paywall and it's a pretty expensive product and the, and the Herald and the Age before me and you know while I've been in charge has been progressively tightening tightening the masthead tightening the, the paywall sorry uh, as we've been going along and look I, you know I've, there's no point sugarcoating it it's it's a pretty disconcerting experience for a reader when you have absolutely wonderful journalists like Peter Archer and Kate McClymont and Adele Ferguson and uh, Nick McKenzie in your stable and yet when you click onto the homepage of the Herald of the Age this Kardashian news <laughs> um, it, the, there's a branding mismatch there and it was it was pretty problematic and that Project Blue that you referred to was kind of I think recognised the faults of that strategy and, and decided to double down on our strengths rather than try and be all things to all people. And then you've obviously as you've kind of 
mentioned you have that unique position now you're on the kind of the managing director but you have also led the editorial content for quite some time um can you talk us through a little bit i guess getting your teams to actually start producing that content because obviously you know you have to convince readers that what you have differentiates themselves what differentiates those titles from whatever you can read elsewhere for free what what was that process like um it was pretty easy because no one liked the kardashian stuff so (laughs) it was like we're going to do less of that and we're going to focus more on what we do um look that is i say that flippantly it's mostly true but there is a like clicks are a drug to a newsroom um and changing the conversation about what your north star should be and what the metrics are that feed up to that north star is a is a complicated process and we had um some people that were real adherents to the the old way of looking at it but i think now, if you spoke to people in any of the newsrooms, they've got a very clear idea that the, the, the key goal is uh, subscriptions. Um, and we've been able to do that in a way that hasn't completely ruined the traffic that we generate. And, and as you can see from the results that we published last year, the commercial outcomes are actually stellar. Like, they're really, really strong. Um, and full credit to Steve-O and his team for delivering that. But... Um, at the same time, the newsroom has to coalesce around a kind of quality, differentiated journalism. That's the that's kind of the that's at the heart, the beating heart of what the mastheads have been for for literally decades and decades and decades. And you know, there's no point. You know, the ABC is free, the Guardian is free. Uh, there's a lot of other news.com.au is free. We've got a kind of we have to be at a higher level because at the end of the day, we're asking people to pay for, for our journalism. Yeah. You, you kind of mentioned that heritage there. We've had some sessions today. You know, Gavin Morris before was talking about the importance of local and regional news. Um, for those two kind of main city titles, the City Morning Herald and The Age, how essential is sort of connecting on a local level to those to those regions? I mean... You know, some would maybe refer to them now as the smage. Does that, I guess, does that bother you? One national title with local outputs. How important does that kind of play into the strategy? Um, I, it does bother me because I think we've done a lot to... I think that smage kind of um, description was probably valid 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um when I started in the sort of editorial management side, there was a mismatch between the budget of the Herald and the Age. That's that's no longer the case. Um, and um, we're very conscious of having them as their own distinct kind of mastheads. Like, uh, and I still don't think it makes much sense to have different reporters at the Herald and the Age covering a Telstra result or being the London correspondent. Um, but at the same time, if if they don't represent their cities, which goes to your actual question, I think they're I think they're in a lot of trouble. And you you we see our competitors, the Guardian's a massive multinational media conglomerate, and it's um it's investing in um, Sydney and Melbourne content because it's trying to take us on there. And um you know we know from our readers in the in the feedback we get directly, and also the you know the the, the qualitative kind of stuff we do. That, that connection with their cities is absolutely, absolutely critical. But it's tricky because, 
at the same time, and I mentioned Greg Highwood before, I remember him saying, they're like, you know, the Herald Reader cares about Sydney, but they also want to know what's going on in the world, and they'll be really, really upset if you don't have someone in Washington and you don't have someone in London and you don't have someone in um, China when you're allowed to, um, covering those things. So that's that's the, the sort of the blessing and the curse of being a generalist masthead. You have to cover a lot of you have to cover a lot of ground in some ways that the AFR is easier. It's a much more defined audience. Um, and it's in some ways, and they do a really, really good job. So I don't dis I'm not discounting what they do, but it's a slightly easier job coming up with content that you know that your audience is going to like. Yeah. And I guess subscription wise, it's <coughs> a little more simple on that front as well. Um, sort of on that heritage front, it's been, four years or so around then since that merger um being a being a journalist with a pretty strong history within that fairfax media group how, how important has kind of keeping hold of that heritage been while also I, I guess amidst all those changes that have come through in the past couple of years um it's it's the question i get most asked like what's it like being with nine and the first thing i always say is we were lining up with a merger with kkr for a while there so anything by comparison would have been would have been okay compared with a uh, a private equity firm um look hugh marks who was the ceo of nine at the time said on day one to me and then to the floor it's like you know your business is going well. You seem well on the road to recovery. We're not going to interfere too much with that. Um, and where you want to collaborate, you can. And when you don't want to collaborate, uh, you can. And like I would say, 9,999 times out of 1,009 has been true to its word on that. Like it's been, it's been overall a really, really positive experience. You have to remember you know, and I've been there 20 years, there was no love for Fairfax as a corporate entity. So people weren't sitting there sort of, you know, upset about the fact that um, that, that corporate entity, there was a bit of attachment to the, the name, but that, that that was gonna be by the wayside. Um, and there've been a lot of really, really talented journalists. Nick McKenzie would be a good example, Adele Ferguson, um, uh, and then Kate's done, a, you know, did, has done one of the biggest podcasts uh, with with Tom from Nine. You know, who've who's sat there and gone, hang on, what can we, what can we do here? How can we collaborate? How can can we, you know, get the uh, the strength of Nine, particularly on the kind of marketing side, which you know doesn't come naturally to a publishing business. Um, how can we how can we harness that with the with the stories we want to tell? Um, yeah, so overall, I mean, I, I guess you'd expect me to say this, but genuinely, it's been it's been a pretty it's been a pretty positive experience, and it's also it just gives you more cover. You you, we were twenty three odd percent of operating earnings of nine, you know, we were we were we were Fairfax before we were kind of the whole thing. So yeah. it, it gives you a little bit more cover when you're part of a bigger business, in the good years like you've just had, and then if we potentially have some challenging years in the future, it's not it's not going to be the be all and end all. And then in terms of on the again on the content side since that merger, what kind of I guess positive opportunities has it has it brought to you maybe that wouldn't have existed should you had sorry had you have been on this journey just as Fairfax you know for example we spoke um, before the session about some of the podcasting opportunities the radio side of the business how do you sort of maximize that and sort of give 
maybe the journalism that you produce in those print or digital titles more, I guess, legs? The good, the good journos want to get their stories out in, an, in as many ways as, as they possibly can. I don't think it's a coincidence that the, one that's, the ones that tend to win the Walkleys and, and the ones you probably know about tends to, tend to be the entrepreneurial mm-hmm. journos. So one of the good things is being able to use Nine's platforms like, like the television. I don't think we're... I think there's still work to be done on radio, to be frank. I think we could, I think we could be better there, although there are sort of specific challenges that come with that. But, you know, with TV, doing it with a company that's, you know, your own. Uh, we used to collaborate with the ABC quite a lot, but the ABC, for very understandable reasons, is getting into digital in a, in a massive way. So we would end up having some pretty big arguments with ABC saying, well, look, you know, Person X has done this thing for Four Corners. We're all, we're fine with that. We don't have a TV arm at Fairfax, but we don't want you putting it all over your website um, in the morning because it's our thing. And then they would say, well, actually, it's our thing now too. Um, Whereas when you're talking to people at the same company, um, you're able to kind of be a little bit more um, forceful about that, about that conversation as well. and yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's that's probably the main thing. And also, just the you know, I, I said it before, but you, you, and I take my hat off to the ABC. They market they market the crap out of a story when they have it. It's all over their radio. It's all over their television. They do a really really good job. Um, you know, in a publishing Fairfax world, I need to we need to stop talking about the past. But you know, almost there's a bit of, we're a bit apologetic about that kind of stuff. Nines a nines a very um, optimistic kind of it's a selling kind of culture there. So they just they're just not embarrassed about like we need to get this story out as 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 far and as wide as we can, and we're going to do everything we can to do it. And we kind of needed to be slapped about the face a little bit on that. Have there been any difficulties, I guess, involved with that in terms of, I guess, having that alignment? Not really. I mean, I think, like, sometimes you look at stories like Eric... Uh, there's a guy called Eric Bagshaw who did this great story on... Um, he's one of our Asian cores- correspondents and he did a great story on uh, this gold thing last week and I was like, why the hell didn't we look at doing this on TV? So it's more regret yeah. than... Um, than um, you know than than anything else. Like people have people have been pretty respectful about about kind of leaving newsrooms to do to do their own to do their own thing. And then I, I guess another part that comes with that is you know I feel like I have to ask you the last couple of weeks we've seen um, on on our site and elsewhere the the kind of. I guess, ongoing negotiations between the publishing side of the business and those journalist members of the MEAA. Um, it appears there's still, I guess, a little bit of distance to go between meeting on that. Can you give us an update on where that's kind of sitting at the moment and, I guess, a reason why there still is ground to be found uh, together? Sure. Well, if I read Mumbrellas this morning, you wouldn't know because <laughs> there were no numbers in it. So... Um, I'll fill people in, given uh, given that story was pretty uh, I light. We, light I would on say that we, we did uh, come to nine for details. Well, it's on the public record what the numbers are. <laughs> so um, we're currently at three and a half percent plus a bonus, which would take someone 
who's on 100 grand up to 5% for FY23. Um, probably a little over 5%. The union's at 5.5. The union wants a three-year deal uh, where, where we want a one- or two-year deal. Um, we pay our journos better than anyone else in Australia, um, and I'm pretty confident that we will close that close that gap and you know the 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 tone of the negotiation so far has been pretty constructive yep um and we've um you know we've we've actually we've made a lot of progress on that front and then there's been a whole bunch of stuff which won't get publicized on you know diversity clauses and um uh, whether or not you can get an allowance for buying a dinner suit or your son or your glasses or whatever, which is sort of a historical relic of the EBA that we've sort of worked through, um, and we're basically down to kind of pay. Um, and yeah, as I said, the gap's closed. I think the momentum is has been okay, and hopefully we'll be in a position to to kind of come to an agreement in the next few weeks. We, we did see today some of those journalists going on Twitter, though, and voicing their displeasure. I guess, what's the process in handling that situation when, I guess, they're still going public about it? What do you mean they're going public? Like, that's, that they're part of a union. They're yeah, well, they're voicing their displeasure when you say negotiations are being progressive at the moment. Well, it's a campaign. Yeah. I so, mean, as I said, I've been through... I've been through, I think, five, I don't know the exact number, there were five or six industrial, uh, bits of industrial action while I was, while I was on the editorial floor. It's not unusual yep. in that sense. And, you know, it, we would never get in the way of people wanting to, wanting to campaign. That's kind of how the industrial relations system works. So I guess a highlight of the strengthening position, as we've kind of been discussing, um, this year for Nines Publishing was bringing back a, a temporary deal, well, a trial deal with the AAP. Um, can you talk us through, I guess, the importance of having that support of those newswire services and I guess what that means for the wider Australian media ecosystem? Um, look, I think the history of AAP was you had a... Um, you had a business that was funded by News Corp and Fairfax then nine. Uh, it cost a lot of money to run AAP and then you would have media organisations like The Guardian and, um, and the ABC paying for the news service at a fraction of what the two shareholders were paying for so there was this kind of complete imbalance in the way in the way that it worked so you know you could you know the guardian ended up paying for exactly what the herald and age would get a third of what the herald and the age was paying um and so um it was a pretty kind of in some ways it wasn't a sustainable kind of uh it wasn't a sustainable kind of situation. I think under the new model where AAP is basically a government funded organisation with a bit of commercial um, assistance on the sides, uh, I think that's a kind of probably a more realistic way for that, for that business to survive. Um, 
And then to get to your actual question, which is what do we get from it? Look, you know, I'm not going to lie. It gives us cover if there's a um, if there's industrial action. Um, it allows us to use AAP where, you know, we found it useful when the Commonwealth Games were on recently. There's, you know, we obviously don't hire someone to cover diving or walking or whatever. Um, and so it gives you a bit more scope on some of that stuff where there's not a return on investment with having a full-time full journalist. Um, and look, overall, I, I think I agree with the, the thrust of your question, which is about the ecosystem. It can only be a good thing. Like a lot of our journos uh, come from AAP originally. It tends to be a, a good breeding ground for, for talent. And the more, the more kind of places younger journos can go to get their start, uh, the better. So I, I think it can only be a good thing. Would you, is that something you would consider continuing with in the future? Uh, we'll see. We signed a, we signed a, 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 a deal with them that goes for some period of time, which is, you know, more than, you know, it goes for a while. So we'll see, we'll see how we go. You're always, you're always evaluating it. But look, I mean, to my original point, we're, we've now signed on as a customer rather than a shareholder. So like, you know, it's a much better deal yep. for us now. And then we also have um, what was reported in the financial earnings, um, the, those deals with some of those major players, the, sorry, the digital tech players. We won't go into the, the finer details of that, but I would ask how centrally do those, some of those deals play in future planning for um, the publishing side of the business just now? Yeah, it's a really good question, and I think I think the digital platforms deals are, are widely misunderstood, and and sometimes deliberately so. The digital platforms deals were struck with Google and Facebook to provide value transfer um, to the publishers for you know uh, to monopolistic businesses, you know, basically completely rewriting the way the commercial side of the business occurred. So, um, and, you know, to Google and Facebook's credit, um, and not without the odd bump in the road, they, they kind of, they went along with us on the journey and we came up with some, with some deals that I think, without the government having to get overly heavy-handed on it, that I think have worked out well for well for both sides but it is a you know at the end of the day it is a revenue replacement i mean it's a really crude way it's a really crude way to put it but you know that when you have a company like like google which is a you know in many ways a very successful and terrific company but when you have a company like google dominating a particular area of the commercial market um that no longer you know publishers can no longer get into there is an element of replacement there so when we make investment decisions, we look at the overall health of publishing and we look at the overall health of nine and then we decide whether or not to invest. So there is no doubt that the contribution from Google and Facebook has been um, helpful, very helpful in the investment decisions that we made last year. So we hired 47, 48 extra staff on top of what we already had in publishing, which is a huge, a huge number of people. Um, but the other factors that contributed to that was the improved commercial performance. The other factors that contributed to that was the improved uh, subscriptions business. So 
people people when they talk about these deals tend to kind of tend to say it's either one thing or the other you know did you know did you get all did did all the google facebook money go to investment or did did none of it yeah. um was that the reason you invested or wasn't it? it it was definitely a factor but it wasn't the only factor and look we have we have some more ambitious investment plans that we'll talk about at the upfronts um next no this month it's september now um and once again we wouldn't be able to be as ambitious were it not for the google and facebook deals but then i'd say well if google and facebook didn't exist we'd probably be getting a bigger slice of the advertising pie so you know you can go round and round on this um but the business overall is healthy and that's one factor it's not the only factor just a couple of final quick ones uh before we throw it to the audience for a couple of questions um on on a kind of more personal note with your history on the editorial side of business do you still like to get involved in that at all how, how close do you get up to that on a day-to-day business or do you have to sort of pull i'm not yourself allowed back a i've little been bit? banned i've been banned from <laughs> the, no i miss the i miss i'm not allowed to, oh, i'm not allowed uh i don't go to conference anymore um and for someone who's sort of been either writing stories or arguing about stories in conference for the best part of 20 years it's like you know i i haven't been a heroin addict but i would imagine it's the same sort of as coming off a drug um and you know it's but at the same time managing a media business is is you know you you're very very close to the action so um it's still really good fun i you know i I can't think of a more interesting industry in a lot of ways um and you know where you can help the newsrooms is sort of backing them when they've got complicated decisions to make so like you know some of the biggest calls I've been involved in was pushing the button on on Ben Robert Smith. You know, you you regularly, particularly in my job, telling person A, B, or C to go away um, when they're trying to exert commercial influence. Like the the amazing thing about the Herald, the Age, and the AFR is is their independence, and it always butts up against commercial pressures in some way. But the commercial value of those of those mastheads lies in their independence. If they lose that, and if their subscribers, and their subscribers take these mastheads so, so seriously, like, you know, we get, we get very direct feedback if, we, if, if, if they think we've let them down in any way, shape or form. Um, but but if, you, if you let them down too often, they'll be, they'll be gone. And the thing that they love is that you're holding the powerful to account, you don't, you know, you're not beholden to anyone, um, and, you, and you know you're gonna, you know, call it as you see it, and um, you know that's what differentiates us from Murdoch. I think on a corporate level, and then the Guardian on a on a kind of ideological level, they're sort of beholden to a certain worldview. So that's we've just got to hold on to that, and it's a constant battle, and you don't always get it right, but that's kind of that's the challenge and the opportunity. Brilliant. Thanks for such an in-depth answer there. Um, and then just finally, we've kind of documented the journey up until now and you've kind of touched on it at points, but what do you see as the next big transformation for the, the publishing side of the business? Um, the, so we've been through a period and I, I think most publishers and probably most news organisations have, would, would have, you know, share some of this sentiment, but we've been through a, a period with this pandemic um, 
And also keep in mind there was the, the US election during the pandemic. These once in a, in a, the most amazing US election ever, these, these once in a lifetime kind of news events where anyone who is vaguely interested in our main mastheads has probably had a look uh, under the hood um, over that period and you know decided on whether or not they like what they see or whether they want to get their news from somewhere else. Unfortunately for us, we've had pretty strong subscriber growth during that period. But obviously the pandemic is mostly over now. Um, people are going outside and um, you know doing other things and all that kind of stuff. So if you, I think the challenge for us is to work out other um, forms of content, it's not a great expression, but other, other bits of content that, that can work with our core news offerings of politics, business, sport, world, and um, keep people in our subscriber kind of universe. We're not particularly cheap. We cost, the Herald and the Age costs more than um, Spotify or Netflix on a monthly basis. You know, we're going through some reasonably uncertain economic times as well. People are looking at their subscriptions and kind of working out where they should rationalise it. So if you look overseas, what is the New York Times doing? They're getting into uh, puzzles in a big way. They're getting into uh, food or cooking as they, as they describe it. And in fact, when you see some of the quarterly results from the New York Times, up to 40% of new subscribers are coming in for those kind of uh, content adjacencies uh, rather than their core news products. So. I think we need to we need to grow a bit. We've got really strong food brands. We've got really strong travel brands. Um, you know, can we do can we do more with them? Can we do stuff with puzzles? Um, and then on the AFR side, one of the little known facts about the AFR is it's got a really really strong and and fast growing B two B subs business. Um, and if you look at their kind of um, contemporaries overseas, like the Wall Street Journal and the FT, they're they're growing really, really quickly in those in that B two B side. So what can we do to accelerate accelerate that? So as I said, there's some more news to come on that, but they're, they're kind of the things we're looking at. Brilliant. Please join me in thanking James. And that is it for this week's Mumbrella Cast. Please make sure you're subscribing on all your podcast platforms where you listen and check out mumbrella.com.au for the stories we've discussed today and more coming up. Um, Kalila, Emma and Banksy, thank you very much once again. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Cal. Can't wait for the uh, awards. <laughs> and I uh, hope you enjoy the rest of the day. See you next week. Bye.